Hello, everyone, and welcome to the In Defense of Plants podcast, the official podcast of InDefenseofPlants.com. What's up? This is your host, Matt. Welcome to the show. How is everyone doing this week? I think it's safe to say that in most places in the Northern Hemisphere, spring is getting underway. And spring always makes me think of the Spring Guild of Wildflowers. I'm not going to call them all ephemerals because they're not. Many of them persist well into summer. But one thing that unites many of the Spring Wildflower Guild is their seed dispersal mechanism, and it involves ants. Yes, we are revisiting the Mirmacockery episode, or the ant dispersal episode. This is an interview I had back in 2018 with my friend and mentor, Dr. Robert Warren, who has spent much of his career studying the interactions between ants and plants, and they are just incredible. It is a reason to love ants, and it's also a reason to pay attention to some potentially really bad invasive ants that have the potential to severely impact the health of our forests. I'm going to let Dr. Warren do all of the talking, but before we get to that, I just want to say if you're enjoying the show and you want to support it to ensure that it has a future, please consider becoming a patron over at patreon.com slash plants. There's a lot of great kickbacks over there as a way of saying thank you for supporting the show, but I literally could not be producing the show each and every week without my patrons, so thank you to all of them. But that is entirely enough for me. Let's get on with the episode. Without further ado, here is my conversation with Dr. Robert Warren. I hope you enjoy. So, Dr. Robert Warren, it has been a while since you've been on the podcast. Years, I think. Yeah, you were one of the first, actually. And then again at the Kuita meeting when you were talking about your nest dispersal paper. Oh, that's right, which is now published. Yes, congratulations. <laughs> Thanks. So, today we're going to focus in on a, a certain specialty of yours that, I don't know, how many years would you say you've been looking at Miramacockery in one form or another? Well, that's a good question, Matt. Probably... All told, told a decade, uh, but I sort of stumbled into it and backed into it and fell. So, you know, it, it was a slow and and um, inauspicious start. <laughs> and uh, even since we've known each other, you've kind of progressed more and more to the ant side of things. But we'll back up for those that heard Miramacockery and have no idea what the hell that is. What is it? Uh, it's, essentially, it's ant-mediated seed dispersal. So in one form or another, ants pick up and move plant seeds. There's really two forms. One could be granivorous ants that actually are going to eat and destroy the seeds, but don't eat and destroy all of them, hmm. cache them in their nest, really equivalent of squirrels and nuts. Yeah. Um, then there's the other, which I mostly study, which is eliasome-based miramacockery, which means the seed has a special appendage hmm. that attracts carnivorous and uh, scavenging ants, they eat the eliasome, discard the seed intact, and that benefits the plant by really several potential uh, things. One, movement, mm -hmm. so um, getting away from the parents. Another is safe site, uh, particularly in fire-prone areas, which uh. most of my research is not. <laughs> <laughs> the seeds are placed safely underground yeah. so that they don't get burned up. And then three, um, oftentimes the ant nests are nutrient-rich or more moist because most of these ants are desiccation intolerant. Oh. And so it provides a nice spot. See, now I didn't even know that about the desiccation. That's interesting, and we can come back to that. 
How common is this, though? Is this something that you see in certain habitats over others? Is it global? Is it mostly temperate or is it mostly tropical? Is it a common thing to recruit ants? Very common. Yes. Yeah. It's probably, well, in fact, I know for a fact, it's most studied in North America where it's the least common. <laughs> <laughs> a little bit of bias there in funding and, and effort, I think. I think so, yes. Yeah. But this is a global phenomenon. We usually think about ants only when they're in and around our homes, or if you're a kid, you get an ant farm. They're occasional curiosities for most people, but it sounds like they're playing a very important role in the distribution of plants and the reproduction of plants across the globe. Certainly some plants, yeah. yes, absolutely. Well, and of course, ant interaction with plants doesn't stop there because many <laughs> plants have extra floral nectaries, which reward ants for protection. Mm -hmm. You know, that would actually be an interesting study if someone hasn't done it. It's just what percentage of plants actually interact with ants in one way or another. Yeah, it would be neat because not only are they fastidious and, and, and work endlessly, it seems, they're vicious. And I, <laughs> you, you partner up with a colony of ants and for protection, and that's a pretty decent set of bodyguards, right? Absolutely, yes. And of course, there's, there's a, a vast array of types of ants and function of ants and yeah, so I don't even really <laughs> yeah. sc scrape the surface of that. But. Well, we could probably have a whole Mere Macaukery-themed podcast maybe once a month or so to cover <laughs> that, but we'll focus in on your system. You're here in temperate North America. It's not as common up here, but are there numerous different species of ant that will do that, or is it a handful that are kind of taking up the bulk of the seed dispersal activity in North America? Yeah, excellent question. So traditionally... Uh, it's been projected that there are a dozen or so ants that are involved in seed dispersal. Okay. More recent work, and this is worldwide, shows that even though a lot of ants will pick up an eliasome-loaded seed, very few are actually effective dispersers. Mm. And so some will eat them, some will eat the eliasome and, and not move the seed. Some will oh. pick up the seed and just drop it. A lot of times... Since eliasomes really mimic insects. Really? As does tuna. A lot of the chemical signature between a dead <laughs> insect and an eliasome and a tuna are very similar. <laughs> so a lot of folks, it's easier to grab a can of tuna sure. and create an ant bait than it is to find enough eliasomes. Yeah. But what, if you look at studies, again, across the world um, and sort of do a meta-analysis, what it shows is tuna overestimates the diversity of ants right. who, who actually are seed dispersers. So when you look at who is really an effective seed disperser, hmm. finds seeds readily, moves them, there's really, in, in almost every system, just one or two species. Wow. It sounds to me like it follows a lot of the observational biases that can come from pollination work for instance oh they visited ergo that's their pollinator <laughs> so just simply seeing an ant mess around with it isn't enough to this is what years of observation and close observation detailed study really have have to be done to tease that apart and know if it's effective or just kind of you know an opportunist as ants tend to be right right absolutely wow. I mean, now in eastern north america it's it's really members of the aphenogaster genus mm. Um, Aphenogaster rudis is probably the most common name, but there are several of those species. Uh, Aphenogaster picea is another that's more hmm. of a northern high elevation Aphenogaster. Okay. And generally, and, and you find this in several studies, that it's, they, they disperse about 75% of seeds that are out there. So they're taking presented. the bulk of that 
And it's not surprising because if you look at the eastern deciduous forest, they are by abundance and biomass, (laughs) they are by far the most common ant. If you took every other ant in the eastern deciduous forest, put it on one side of the scale, put a phenogaster on the other, you'd you'd have more phenogaster. That is mind-blowing. Wow. Talk about an underrated group of organisms. They never enter houses, <laughs> so yeah. they don't get noticed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's true. To think of that, probably most of the people listening, if they've ever hiked in an eastern deciduous forest, have undoubtedly seen one or two of these species, multiple true. individuals of it, and just never really thought it's just another ant in the litter. Wow, that is cool. And they don't enter your house, but are they, they're colony forming. Obviously, they're gregarious, eusocial insects. Uh, are they staying in one spot? So they set up shop and stay there for the whole colony life cycle, or are they moving around the forest? Uh, they seem to like to move. Hmm. And they will nest. They, their, their preference really is downed wood. Downed um, wood. Slightly decomposed so that it's more spongy and holds water. Mm. Again, it provides a nice hydro refuge yeah. so they don't desiccate. Yeah. They're difficult, not terribly, but that's why they could be a little difficult to keep in the lab is because they desiccate. They don't like dry. Proper humidity control. Yeah, and so, but they will nest in a, in a small colony, will nest in a curled up leaf. <laughs> I've seen that. <laughs> Rhododendron leaves seem to be yeah, like a, a favorite. So they're pretty mobile. That's impressive. Now, in terms of the plants they're interacting with, obviously not all plants have adopted the eliasome antitractant strategy, is there a, even if it's superficial, a grouping, a generality that can be said about plants that are partaking in this activity? Generally spring ephemerals. Okay. And they they bloom early and they set seed early. The original theory was that they got their seeds dropped at a time in early spring when there wasn't much food available for ants and mm-hmm. that would get more ant attention. Um, both my work and others is has not upheld that theory. Hmm. What might be a little bit better theory is that the ants prefer bigger seeds. And what you do see in the Miramacacors is the smaller the seed, the earlier they drop. So hmm. it's probably that there is less food and they're more competitive. As the season progresses, you find that the Miramacacor plants that drop seeds get bigger and bigger. And what I've found is that it's pretty much because they're competing with increasing other foods. Okay. And so the ants never really prefer the seeds. If you put seeds and termite (laughs) corpses out or seeds and drosophila out, the ants will take the insect corpse every time. Yeah. But if nothing else is around, they'll pick up the seed. So the the ants aren't stupid. They can distinguish between the two. But it also Mm -hmm. sounds like this is also, you know, almost more competition between plant species than it is solely based on food availability through time when things come on board. Yes, huh. yes. And you find a phenogaster in places where there's no miramacacores. Yeah. So there's no dependency. What's amazing to me is spring ephemerals isn't a taxonomic distinction. It's it's the lifestyle that many plants have independently converged upon. And we could, again, have a whole topic about that, but the fact that multiple groups of them have all evolved an appendage, some sort of appendage on the seed, an eliasome to attract the ants, is it different for each lineage? Is there a lot of similarities between them that's not just superficial, they're here to attract ants? Do you know much about like the chemistry and the makeup of the eliasome? Generally, yeah, it's fatty acids, mm-hmm. um, lipids, 
And, yeah, I think the signatures are fairly similar. Okay. But, again, it's really converging on the dead insect signature. Yeah. Or the tuna signature, yeah. however you want to look <laughs> yeah. at it. Such a weird one-off. Hey, tuna. <laughs> so this sounds real kumbaya, right? I kind of want to pull out an acoustic guitar, light a fire, and just talk about <laughs> harmony. And it. Would you call this a mutualism? Yeah, that's a setup. <laughs> Um, we are all we all began being taught mutualisms, and I think that there was a um, a run on mutualisms that might be waning a little bit. So yeah, maybe we can use this one as as a uh, symbol of all mutualisms. Yeah. So originally, the the ants move the seeds, the ants eat part of the seed. It was assumed from that observation that both benefit, so it was called a mutualism, and that's essentially been around a century okay if you, for every 99 papers on the plant benefits there's one paper that has tested the ant benefits huh. and pretty much none of the papers have shown any benefit to the ants okay and indeed our work our recent work has shown that it actually might not benefit it might hurt the ants so hmm. you could go from considering it mutualistic Certainly for the plants, there's great benefit. Yeah. For the ants, I, th I think that at best, you can say it's commensal. Okay. At worst, it's probably parasitic. Wow. Weird to think, and I don't know how much you're comfortable with saying at this point or where you're at with that research, but what would be the disadvantage of an ant picking up these seeds? Sure. So essentially, you're distracted from picking up better things. So oh. you're busy carrying something that actually doesn't provide a great amount of food benefit, and that forager's time is taken up when they could be maybe finding a dead mm. spider or so forth. Um, we have research that shows a negative correlation between the number of seeds found in the nest and the, and the lipid health of the nest, hmm. which is correlational. So essentially... Um, it could be that desperate ant colonies have nothing but seeds. Uh, and that's so it's not a, a causal situation. Yeah. But when we look at plots where all herbs were removed for 13 years, huh. there's no difference in aphenogaster populations. The aphenogaster populations where the herbs were removed are actually a little bit healthier, have higher lipid content. Wow. Now, it could be that for some reason removing the herbs brings in more insects, brings in some alternate food, but that really doesn't matter. Yeah. They don't need the plants. Sure. They don't need the plants at all. It's It sort of sounds like the analogy of sending someone out for a turkey because you're starving and they come back with a bag of Cheetos and you're like, okay, we can eat this, we'll be full, <laughs> but are we really benefiting in the long run? This is Jack and the Beanstalk. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Jack and the uh, Cheetos. Wow, that's interesting to think about that. Well, let me add real quickly. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I've had several reviewers get very upset. In, in fact, one <laughs> of them put in all caps, this will never be published if you mention commensalism. Wow. So I think there's an emotional bond yeah. to that old story. And who knows, maybe additional data will, yeah. will, will bring it back. Um, I think that we have to be very careful. Let me back up a sec. The interesting thing is ecology has drummed natural history out. Mm-hmm. And yet, <laughs> holds on to some old natural history observations that probably shouldn't have been. Um, you know, a great example is that the ants on the Acadia trees, they get food and shelter and they protect the Acadia from herbivores and so forth. Well, as it turns out, the food 
actually has an enzyme that knocks out the ant digestive system, <laughs> so it will starve if it eats anything but Acadia nectar. Yeah. So, <laughs> is that a mutualism? A pretty obligate <laughs> one, if you <laughs> maybe not by choice. Forced yeah, obligate. Forced obligate. <laughs> you work with us now. Wow. Um, you know, I think when you look at ant birds, it's another where it was presumed to be a mutualism. These ant birds follow army yeah. ant columns and pick up the insects that get stirred up. Well, when you exclude the ant birds, the colonies are actually healthier. So they're hmm. taking insects the ants would have gotten. Yeah. So it's a parasitism, not a mutualism. Again, I think a lot of natural history in general, whether you're going purely science with it or purely whimsical with it, uh, suffers from our bias towards the harmony of nature. <laughs> right. And like we were joking the other day about which what should be the theme music for a nature documentary. It shouldn't be happy-go-lucky folk music. It should be heavy metal. I think Slayer, Chemical Warfare <laughs> yes. would be the perfect song. I love it. I love it, yeah. <laughs> Some plants would make the UN very upset with their chemical warfare. Um, <laughs> yeah, they do not follow the Geneva <laughs> nope. convention. Nope, nope, nope. Okay, so a seed is in the ant midden. It's getting thrown out. The benefit, obviously, is, is like you said, it's moved far away from its parent. It's not competing with its direct kin. It's in a protected area. I would also assume that if the ants are throwing it out, they're throwing it out on a pile of other debris. Um, is there any evidence that the plants are getting a like a nutrient or fungal benefit from that? Or, uh, you know, the microclimate, obviously, is favorable. Yeah, well, and that's, that's a long time been looked at is... For some reason, you have higher germination rates of seeds that are left in ant middens. Hmm. Now, we have to qualify. There's been a kind of a little a new area in this of secondary dispersal, the fact that sometimes ants will bring the seeds back to the colony, remove the elizome, and then take them somewhere else and dump them. Oh. But that doesn't always happen. And I've actually found plenty of seeds in ant colonies where they didn't even take off the elizome. Um, when we do our artificial nests, a lot of times we'll find a chamber with seeds in it. A lot of times we won't, which means they probably kicked them out. Hmm. Um, so the interesting part is that ants are, are essentially clonal, okay. right? It's yeah. all the same sister, sisters. Yeah. Yeah. They live in, in dark, moist places, so they're very susceptible. or They're in habitats where they should be susceptible to disease. Yeah. So ants are the only organism that have metapleural glands, which are these glands. For most ants, it's on their sides. Mm -hmm. Some have them in their jaws as well. And these glands continuously exude antimicrobial chemicals. Oh. Which is one of the reasons ants are crappy, if pretty much non-existent, <laughs> pollinators, yeah. because they kill pollen. I can think of maybe two exceptions to that rule. It can happen, yeah. right, but it's... It should be happening much more. For the amount that you see them on flowers. Yeah. And they're hymenoptera. Yeah. So, you know, a lot of hymenoptera are pollinators. But it's those chemicals. Well, when I think the first thing the listener would say is, what about fungus farming ants? <laughs> Absolutely. So yeah. the, the chemicals can be very specific. Sure. So essentially they create these um, hovels. <laughs> <laughs> I like that word. Good word use. Hovels of antimicrobial chemical activity. Okay. That got me thinking a lot about the fact that they don't move seeds very far really had me questioning worldwide, why are so many plants converging on this adaptation for what's at best adequate dispersal? <laughs> right. You're right. not talking hundreds of feet or miles or anything like that. This is like a few meters at best. 
yeah, yeah, for the most part. You know, maybe if a uh, flicker comes along and eats an ant with a seed, <laughs> <laughs> and the seed survives, gets the assist. <laughs> um, so started thinking a lot about this antifungal environment as, mm. a, as a safe site. And if you look at seed cleaning ants in the tropics, so these are ants that will grab little fruits and they'll eat all the pulp off. And those seeds germinate much better. Certainly. And it's not because there's an inhibitor in the fruit right. as much as they exude antifungal compounds onto the seed from those jaw uh -huh. glands. And those chemicals have been isolated and shown to effectively knock back awesome. these fungal. And if you look at in temperate regions for sure, or moist areas, at least 90% of all plant death is in the seed yeah. to seedling stage. Yeah. And a lot of that is fungal. Yeah. Um, damping off disease, for example. Anyone that starts seeds in the temperate area in spring knows that one really well. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, studies I've done around here show that actually adding water to seeds can reduce germination because you increase fungal load. Right. You're giving it fuel to, right. to the fire. So there's some in between. Well, anyway, we just published a study showing that, well, first we took somebody else's study, Zettler's study, and they were looking at just changes in fungal communities without having targeted this idea of, of some sort of benefit to the plant. Yeah. So we went through their data and looked and categorized the fungi they found in ant mounds, including a phenogaster, and not ant mounds mm. for pathogenic fungi, phytopathogenic fungi, right. so yeah. things that attack plants. And sure enough, there were significantly fewer wow. phytopathogenic fungi in ant soil enough to detect that's pretty remarkable and they used assays which yeah. don't capture they only capture the fungi that will show up in an assay yeah and so what we did is we actually used next gen technology fancy and um, identified all the fungi we possibly could in Dang. soil that included a, that a phenogaster had nested in the closest proximate soil to the nest that they didn't nest in and we found significantly more phytopanthic fungi in the soil that ants did not occupy. Wow. So I think this is actually an explosive yeah. new potential for the benefit of myrmecockery for plants. Because for those of us that spent a lot of time with plants, <laughs> we know that we see much better dispersal modes all the time. Sure. Yeah. A. And B, we know that fungi and even bacteria are, take a huge toll. Yeah. So that, to me, personally, seems to be a much more effective selector for ant dispersal. And again, myrmecockery is not a few genera, one-offs, special exceptions. Major classes of plants are doing this, and if that dispersal distance isn't much to write home about, there must have been something else really kind of honing that selection exactly. pressure. That is really exciting to learn about, and that tells a very interesting story for plant survival especially woodland herbs that generally have a hard time getting around in wet soils yeah and then i mean that's the whole thing is it is so laden with fungal pathogens yeah now of course getting moved also reduces your fungal you know jansen connell effect it actually getting away from fungal buildup right so that all has to be teased out i mean i'm, I'm always gonna have to qualify <laughs> yeah, yeah um that there's still a lot to be done in this mm. area and i think secondarily with that if just look at a phenogaster or eastern ants, we know that walking sticks have adaptations <laughs> to get them to take them back into the colony. And we also know that gall wasps 
actually we've retrieved galls, G-A-L-L-S. <laughs> yeah. um, so they've fallen off the leaf and the ants treat them like seeds and bring them back to the colony. So one, that could be protection from predators. Yeah, certainly. But two, all of the things that would attack an ant, either bacteria or fungi, would probably attack a wasp, Hymenoptera, yep. or a walking stick, which has a similar uh, makeup. Yeah. So this antifungal... You know, might not just be hijacked by plants. It might be huh. beneficial to several things. And ants, I mean, a phenogaster especially, is everywhere. They're everywhere. It's a big selection pressure out there to tap into that system, whether it's parasitic or commensal. It's, uh, it's a really good thing to hit. I mean, most eusocial insects can afford to take some sort of hit. That's why we see so many relationships among different groups with the eusocial insects. Disproportionate to the eusociality versus solitary yeah lifestyle. oh yeah i mean if you what is it i'm not i don't have the exact figures but you social species are probably one out of a hundred if not one out of a thousand insect yeah. species and yet they're the the vast majority of biomass yeah i think i remember seeing of the bees and wasps it's the eusocial ones are two to five percent depending on and even though that two to five means the ones that are barely make it as social you right. know kind of just getting along but their biomass is through the roof because yeah. they're so highly successful. So as you said, they can afford, and they get exploited all the time. Yeah. Anybody that likes orchids knows that, right? <laughs> certainly. <laughs> certainly, certainly, certainly. Wow. Now, this is a very important picture. And again, eastern U.S. isn't the hot spot for this. Uh, paints a really interesting picture globally of this interaction. And it also is kind of scary to think about how this system could be disrupted in various ways. And that's where a lot of your research has gone recently in, in a lot of ways is, is looking at not only how climate change might affect this system, but also um, there's some ants showing up here in North America that didn't start here in North America, right? Right. So I think to start with just a, a quick background is we've done some research that shows with, with probably what's post-glacial warming and the movement of these ants north and the actual replacement of, uh, let's call them uh, heat intolerant species with heat tolerant species, all of Phenogaster, yeah. um, and, and specifically Picea rudis, actually causes a failure of dispersal for the early blooming plants. Oh. And so, to be honest, and this is, this is just my theory, I think that your southern range edge for a lot of spring ephemerals is not so much because the warming affects the plant as mm -hmm. much as it changes the synchronicity between the ants and plants when these other species move in. And so, you know, what we've seen with one of the early spring ephemerals we look at is that spring blooming plants, I should yeah. say that. The Georgia populations don't disperse because Rudis doesn't come out early enough. Which as, plant is this? Uh, uh, hepatica. Oh, okay. So the little liverwort hepatica. It's not a hepatica It's anymore. anemone now. Yeah, yeah. anemone. Cute nobilis. Nobilis and acutiloba. Yeah. Are two of the ones that people would probably be most familiar nobilis. with. Nobilis. So it's it's kind of stuck in Georgia because rudis doesn't come out early like Picea, and Picea's moved north by about fifty kilometers. Huh. Um, wow. But it was once down there, and I've actually found at least one museum record of it down there. So that won't wipe out a plant. Right. It's just going to be a range edge effect, and that's probably happened multiple times over multiple glacial advances, <laughs> yeah. right? iterations. So the two things that are probably more important in the context of climate change are, one, with the land use fragmentation, 
we see that you're losing these ant dispersed plants on forest edges mm. because the ants while they will fly between patches on aerial mating flights they don't cross mm. they're not open habitat ants so when you have a road you're going to have plenty of mixing between the ants because when they fly and a male finds a female it knows no bounds <laughs> yeah <laughs> however Woo. they're not going to carry a seed yeah across the road they're not going to forage yeah so you see these edge populations of ant dispersed plants retreating wow and so becoming more isolated and the more edge effect you get the more fragmentation there is that's something that's going to become exponential it is and they don't return quickly Mm -hmm. because they're ant dispersed it's a slow yeah a grind um the second one is you know originally folks were very concerned about the southern fire ant yeah um, but that's pretty much an open habitat only ant and really doesn't cross i mean there's some interaction at the edges um, but it's probably not the big problem but you seem more likely, at least in my experience, to find fire ant colonies in your lawn than you are in, in the, the middle of the forest. Yeah, much, much, much more, <laughs> much more likely. Much to the chagrin of a lot of homeowners, I yeah. think. <laughs> yeah, bad for homeowners, probably a minimal effect on mere macaquery. However, we have one that's been popping up and surprisingly popping up a lot. It's called the Asian needle ant, um, Pachycondyla chinensis. I think like all non-native species, it may have been around and nobody noticed, mm. and all of a sudden we're noticing, but we have a site down in Georgia that I actually did work on you know, 15 years ago, and I wasn't looking, but it, I don't think it was there, and now it's there. The amount you were looking for other things, you think you would have maybe crossed paths with it once or twice. And there were ant people there, yeah. much better than I am, so I would have <laughs> thought they would have seen it. Yeah. Um, it's definitely there now, and in fact, we had I had some artificial nests in, and in the first year, there was only a phenogaster, and in the second year, they started showing up. So I think I had actually hit right on an edge and didn't wow. know it. Um, but they're there now. Yeah. And the problem with Pachycondyla is they take over, they form super colonies. The colony, and essentially what this is, is species coexist because we tend to fight with our own kind more than we do others. Yeah. Because we have obviously the same niche requirements yeah what we're seeing with a lot of these non-native ants and i actually think this might be a mechanism for a lot of non-native plants too that form monocultures is that you're not getting any intraspecific competition oh so they run into the colony next door and they think it's their colony they all smell the same they're all the same so it's it is it turns out if you have for example the argentine ant has invaded most of california mm-hmm. and pretty much California is the colony. Wow. That whole region is genetically so similar. Apparently. There, wow. there's, there's several ideas on how this is happening, but probably genetic bottleneck is part of it. That's bizarre and kind of terrifying. Yeah. I mean, in the long run, it's you know we're all taught that low genetic diversity is bad, and I think over the long haul, it, that tends to prove to be true. But over sure. the short haul, it actually can be a way to quickly maximize resources. Certainly. I mean, Cloning. You see, yeah. I mean, plants will consistently do that just to keep a population established until proper conditions bring others or allow others to establish. Yeah, and it's it, it's a very rapid way to take over. So anyway, uh, Pachycondylo just saturates the habitat. We, we definitely find that a phenogaster drops out, and we also find that seed dispersal, they don't tend to be good seed dispersers. Ugh. So they knock out 
the Miramacocri. So you're taking out one of the most abundant ant species in the forest, the most abundant ant species in eastern forests at least, and all of the services it provides. Except for maybe termite consumption. <laughs> Dang. That is a heavy blow to try and wrap your head around. This could be a this could be a bad one. Yeah. Um, the only thing that I think gives any uh, respite to those of us that live northward <laughs> um, is that Pachycondyla does not, and this is very speculative, but per my observations, does not seem to be cold tolerant. Okay. And it doesn't seem to be adapting the way that the, the southern fire ant is showing up at high mountain elevations now. Yeah, unfortunately. Pachycondyla, when, when, at least in our plots, it, it didn't come out foraging full two or three weeks after wow. a phenogaster, which suggests that physiologically it's not acclimating. It's like me. It wants nothing to do with that long, late winter temperature. <laughs> <laughs> which means that, you know, maybe all those of us in Buffalo will be fine. <laughs> yeah. But when yeah. we're down here in North Carolina, we're in trouble. Yeah. It sucks to hear those sorts of things. It's a reality that everyone has to kind of face and just realize it's happening. Is there anything the average listener can do to slow or prevent it? I mean, this kind of seems like unless you're really looking for it, you're not going to find it most of the time. What can the average listener do to stop invasive ants, if anything? <laughs> prevent them from getting hurt in the first place. <laughs> yeah, I think, unfortunately, by the time we're being active on any of these things, yeah. the, the, the cat's out of the bag, the genie's out of the bottle... We can do sort of a scorched earth approach, but that tends to hurt everybody. Yeah. I'm not trying to be uh, no, uh, fatalistic, no, but... Reality. And my guess is, I think, and I think the literature would support this, we don't really usually see things get problematic until about a century after they were introduced. Mm. So the truth is, what's going to be on the podcasts 100 years from now <laughs> yeah. is probably out there in very small numbers right now. Right we could identify those yeah we'd be in good shape yeah if only there was a checklist of potential invasives but i think that's been largely elusive for most people that have tried to investigate it it is and and no politicians want to support <laughs> no. banning something no. before there's it's a scourge I mean, it's the same with climate change until everybody's suffering yeah not a lot's going to be done well there's something to be said i think for boots on the ground people taking interest in natural history or kind of pushing for more natural history observations to come back into the ecological world because you can find things early. Early detection is often really important and seeing whether you're a gardener that notices hmm, this plant is getting a little rowdy, maybe I should take note of that and mention it to others. Or, hey, I was hiking here the other day, I flipped over a log and found these ants. You know, there's something to be said about engaging the public and getting to know a little bit more about what's in the woods around you so that if you do see something, say something. I hate that analogy that I just said. No, no, yeah. no, that's, I mean, I would say that for a lot of ants and plants, they're getting moved around in gardening material. Yeah. Um, I know for Microstigium viminium, which is um, Japanese stilt grass, it came to my house in pine straw. Hmm. <laughs> And when they redid our, our dirt road here in the mountains of North Carolina, it showed up all along the edges, so it was in their fill dirt. Wow. Um, yeah. You know, when you and I were out scouting Pachycondyla sites, one of them was a place that clearly <laughs> had just done landscaping. Yep. Yeah. That's probably how Pachycondyla has gotten around, is in landscaping material. That's unfortunate. And so one queen, Yeah. and, and you have an invasion. Yeah. 
Yeah, I was reading an article the other day about moss and how they're starting to pay attention to these mosses that are showing up in weird places that they probably weren't before. And they're worried that, A, we haven't been paying attention to those sorts of organisms long enough to know where they came from and how much they've expanded. But then just that, yeah, the ignorance of, and you know, not willing in a lot of ways, the ignorance of people moving things around and not knowing what they're moving with them. So you take a pot full of dirt even and what do you have living in there? Yep. Yeah. Well, I actually did my own little experiment. I went down to Lowe's, and I bought two bales, no, four bales of hay. I brought them home, put them in a sunny part of my hmm. mountain house, wrapped them in plastic so they couldn't be contaminated, and within a month I had fire ants. No way. So I have no doubt they're going around in hay because, obviously, if you've seen where fire ants live, they love pastures, particularly pasture edges. Yeah. And so they're probably going around in hay. Mm -hmm. And they did an experiment in Australia when they had a major drought. So they had to bring in all this straw to feed the animals so they didn't starve in this drought. And, and so they sampled these hay bales. And I wish I could remember the numbers, but they found thousands of non-native seeds. Wow. Wow. So, you know, until that <laughs> is curved, the level of scrutiny needed. Listeners just might as well worry about who wins the World Cup. <laughs> Timely. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, I appreciate you taking the time to talk with us. If people want to find out more about this work and see what's going on in your lab as things progress with your research, how do you recommend they reach out and find you? Oh, then go to the website. Okay. I'll post links to that. Sorry, I don't remember. That's it. okay. It's... I click on it sometimes. Yeah. But... <laughs> if you type Dr. Robert Warren Buffalo State, you will find it because that's usually how I have to relocate it. That's probably a good... Yeah. But I'll post links to everything. Um, thank you. I appreciate you taking the time to talk with us. Oh, excellent. Keep up the great work. Yeah. Love the blog. Appreciate it. I hope this is uh, a call to listeners to start appreciating the ants in their own backyard. <laughs> All right. Cheers. Cheers. All right, what a wonderful interview that was. I always enjoy talking to Robert, and his research really celebrates the wonderful interactions that make our living biosphere possible. As always, you can check out all of the relevant links for things we talked about over at indefensiveplants.com slash podcast. Just navigate to the show notes for each episode, and that's where I put all of the links conveniently there so you don't have to get out of the shower or pull over to write them down. As always, I thank Robert for taking time out of his busy schedule to talk with us, and I'm sure you'll hear from him again in the not-too-distant future. But that is it for this week. If you're enjoying the show, once again, consider supporting it. There's a lot of ways to do that. As I mentioned at the beginning, you can become a patron over at patreon.com slash They make the show possible. Speaking of which, I have a shout-out to the latest producer over at Patreon. Thank you to Kazzies, who signed up at the producer credit level. They, as well as all of my other patrons, are making the show possible. But that's not the only way you can support it. Anything you could do to pitch in, including picking up some of our customizable merch, a copy of my book or stickers really goes a long way in keeping this show up and running. And once again, all of those links can be found in the show notes as well. But until next time, hang in there, stay healthy, and get outside if you can. This is your host, Matt, signing out. Adios, everyone.